Well, it's Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Central. Thanks for joining us for another edition of A Random Walk. I'm Ben Coleman, your host. I'm honored to be joined by my good friend, Guy Snodgrass, who has a great new book coming out about leadership lessons he learned at Top Gun. Guy, thanks for being here with us tonight. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Great to be with you. So let's just start by setting the stage. Bring us to Fallon, Nevada, as you're walking out to the jet on a flight at Top Gun. What's going through your mind and what happens in the first moments? <laughs> Great question. And I think the pivotal question back to you is, are you asking me to recount the experience as a, as a student or as an instructor? Because those are two very different elements. <laughs> so let's recount this, the, the student experience. I think that's probably a little more nerve wracking. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. So yeah, you're as, you know, as a student at Top Gun, it's like this big bag of emotions because you feel incredibly honored. You've been selected to go through one of the, just the coolest programs that the U.S. Navy has to offer. It's kind of like uh, Navy SEALs, et cetera. I mean, it's, a, it's an exclusive club. So you know that you've worked hard to get there, but at the same time, you know, all the instructors are constantly evaluating you. You're, you've got a great peer group of men and women who are also at their top of their game and it's a very competitive environment. So, you know, every day that you would arrive at the hangar and you're, you're briefing, you're prepping, and then you now are going to get your flight gear on, you walk out to the aircraft. And uh, I would say there's always just a little bit of those butterflies going because you know you want to perform, you want to do very well, but there's also a very realistic chance that you're going to have what we call a refly where you go, you execute the mission, you land, you debrief and find out that you did not meet the bar and therefore have to do the event over again a second or possibly a third time. Yeah. And so talk to us about the, the brief before that. What, what's the preparation like? What do you have to do? Um, what are all the things you have to get ready to make that happen? Sure. So let's take actually two steps back. Um, and just for your listeners, right? Because there's a, you have such a diverse audience. And so when you think yeah. about the U.S. Navy Fighter Weapons School, uh, which everyone knows more commonly as Top Gun, uh, it's a real school. It's in Fallon, Nevada. And it's one of those uh, type of events where it's almost like graduate school for fighter pilots. And so when you, a big part of your flight, you know, you, there's three phases, if you will. There's the brief that you just asked about. Then there's the flight portion. And then really the most critical is after you land from the flight, you take your, your gear off, your uh, your G-suit, your helmet, et cetera, your survival gear, and then you get into the debrief, which we always consider to be the most important because it's where you learned all the great lessons. So if you go to that first part that you just asked about the briefing, we're talking multiple hours in advance, uh, usually days in advance. You're thinking about the type of mission you're going to fly and you're studying. Uh, there's actually truly like a large Bible called the Top Gun Manual that a lot of naval aviators use, especially if you're going through Top Gun. So you've read through all the relevant chapters, you've studied, you've committed to memory, a lot of numbers and facts and figures you need to be successful on that particular flight. And then you would take all that information and all that knowledge and you apply it against the mission that they've given you. And the very first thing you're gonna do is walk into a briefing room and there's usually a large dry erase board at the front of the room and you've got uh, models you can use that you can actually use one in each hand so you can demonstrate the different regimes of flight. So you use that whiteboard, you write up all the pertinent information for the flight and your instructor or instructors, depending on the type of mission you have, will walk into the room and like right on time, you will say three, two, one, hack. You're using GPS calibrated time and, and you start right on time. And now you've got the instructors just sitting there with their clipboards and they're listening to you. Everything you say is being evaluated. Uh, and it, just the, even the way you talk, your mannerisms are being evaluated. How effectively can you teach the subject matter material? And when you think about it, there's three things that they say that they're always looking for from a Top Gun graduate, and that's talent, passion, and personality. You have to be at least you know, above average in the aircraft. You have to be talented to be credible. When you go back to the fleet as a Top Gun trained aviator, you have to have passion for the material because that's what keeps you going and puts put in the long hours to be successful. And then the last one's probably the most important personality in that you have to be someone that you'd want to learn from. You have to be approachable. You have to be someone who can also take that information and teach it to others. So that's really the briefing in a nutshell. And as soon as you finish that briefing, like we alluded to, you head out the door and you go get your flight gear on and go fly.
That's great. So then let's take a step back, as you mentioned, and talk to us about the history of Top Gun, where it came from, and why it's such an iconic element in naval aviation and in America at large. Yeah, it's a great question. So when you think about just the kind of the, the arc of history with naval aviation, you've had ups and downs. And when you think back to World War II, for example, the U.S. Navy had a good what they call kill ratio. And that means that if you and I were to go out flying together, maybe we shoot down three enemy planes for every one friendly airplane we lose. So that would be a three to one kill ratio. It means you're you're doing a pretty good job. And you see those numbers. Of course, the more effective you are, you want those to be a higher ratio. So if you had, a, for example, a 12 to one kill ratio, that means you're preserving your own resources and assets. You're, you're protecting your service members' lives. You're saving the aircraft, but you're also doing a great job against your adversary. So what you found happening was as you got out of World War II, where the Navy and the, the Army were very successful, you get into the Korean War, we're still doing very well. And all of a sudden you get into Vietnam in the 19, you know, early 60s timeframe is what you're looking at. And no longer are we seeing those really high kill ratios. They've come way down. And there's a lot of reasons that people speculate. Uh, it gets everything from the development of radar-guided missiles and aircrew had not been appropriately trained or they didn't have a lot of experience with them, uh, which meant that they were missing more often than they were hitting their targets. Uh, you had different aircraft. You had a more highly trained adversary who also you were fighting over their home turf in Vietnam, and they knew how to exploit that advantage over service members from the United States. So all those things coalesce, and you find that the kill ratios come way down. And so you... You had a, a U.S. Navy captain named Frank Alt, who was tasked by the Pentagon to study the issue, put together a, a small team, a cohort that did a great job. I mean, they poured through a lot of records and reports to find out what really is the underlying reasons that we're having such difficulty in Vietnam. And so from that came what was known as the Alt Report in 1969, and that's what put forth a lot of different changes that the Navy should use. One of those recommendations was to create a U.S. Navy fighter weapon school that could focus on tactical training, training aviators to in the latest and greatest tactics. And um, that's what got formed in Miramar, California. And then over the, over the course of time, it became known as Top Gun. And so if I'm a young naval aviator and uh, I want to go to Top Gun, how do I do that? So... You know, it's really by, you know, it's kind of like everything in the military, right? There's, you express your interest in pursuing a certain path, but ultimately the Navy or that organization has to pick you and bring you in. Um, so you have a lot of individuals, a lot of men and women who will express interest in Top Gun and they'll put it in an application package. And then the Top Gun instructors, there's also, so that's the kind of the core, if you will, in Fallon, Nevada. And then you have two weapon schools for fighter aircraft. One's going to be in, in, on the East Coast in Virginia Beach, Virginia. The one on the West Coast is in Lemoore, California. So those are your two weapon schools on each coast. So all three of those organizations will basically get together and take a look at all the applicants, take a look at how many individuals you need to bring in for the next few months. And then you start kind of, it's like, trade and baseball cards. You, you take a look at what the needs of the service are, what the needs of naval aviation are, the skill set of what people are, are bringing to the fight. And I think, uh, you know, that's the application process for weapon school. And then typically what you do as well is if you want to shoot to be a Top Gun instructor, then you do what's called a rush ride. And that's where usually your command, your squadron, will afford you the opportunity to train, or excuse me, to fly to Fallon, Nevada, and you will brief a Top Gun instructor, you'll go you know, fly a mission against them, and then you'll debrief it. And they evaluate you the whole time and they can take that information and now bring it back to the entirety of the Top Gun staff and they will deliberate whether or not you've met the bar in their mind to become a Top Gun instructor. Well, let's talk about that rush ride some more. And you know, in your new book that's coming out, you have a great vignette on, on your rush ride. Can you walk us through that story and kind of tell us what it was like for you to do that? Yeah, you bet. Uh, I'll never forget. I mean, I had gone out to Fallon, Nevada. Uh, I was actually paired up. So they give you a kind of an option of a couple different types of missions you can fly. The one I chose to do because it's a ton of fun, but also because it's a little bit easier to debrief and it consumes fewer resources. It's just two aircraft and two people. And that's what's called uh, BFM, Basic Fighter Maneuvers. Uh, the, Air, the Air Force would call this ACM or Air Combat Maneuvering. So everyone knows it as dogfighting. 
And so in my mm. case, I got to go up against the actual subject matter expert from Top Gun, a guy named Bo Locke, uh, call sign Gimp. Yeah. And he was uh, one of the more senior Top Gun instructors. And he was, like I said, the expert for you know, BFM. And he, he's awesome. And so uh, I go in and I, I conduct the briefing. We fly the mission, uh, basically get my butt handed to me on each of the different sets that we're flying. And then I come back and I just, you know, you stoicism, right? So you just keep a straight face. You go to the whiteboard. You call it like it is. Um, probably being a little bit overly hard on myself, but you just debrief it and you put all the cards on the table. You don't make any excuses for your poor performance. You just basically say, here's how, here's what happened. Here's my recall. And here's more importantly, what each of us can do in the future to get better. And I remember thinking, yeah, I mean, I, this guy just beat me up in the sky. There's no way I'm going to be asked to join the Top Gun staff. And then that really wasn't the outcome. He, he kind of paused after I was done and said, hey, you know, overall, he did a great job. You know, you can always get better in the aircraft, but it's obvious you put a ton of work into this. Your knowledge is, is fantastic. You work really hard. And I think you got a lot of promise. So I think you'd be great on the Top Gun staff. I remember thinking, you know, kind of going from uh, zero to hero in about a split second. But it was a great experience. And I think it's just a testament not only to always staying in the fight and never throwing in the towel, but also just um you know, realizing that an organization like Top Gun, like I said, Navy SEALs, Delta Force, whoever it may be, you know, a lot of these elite organizations, you don't just walk in the door elite. Uh, that's mm -hmm. something that the organization will continue to work on you, train you, give you the skill set and, you know, and hone that, uh, hone your abilities over time. Well, bringing up the name Bolock, uh, raised alarm bells and in good way for me, he was a department head and a fellow squadron for me and my air wing. And he was a master of basic fighter maneuvers and just a great guy to boot. Uh, so it's just funny how small our community really is. So you got, you got the rush ride, you know, uh, Bo said, Hey, we'd love to have you come on the staff. So you arrive at Top Gun. What's the syllabus like? And what, what do you do when you get to Fallon, Nevada? Sure. So there's, there's a progression. In my case, my squadron, BFA 131, that's a strike fighter squadron that's based out of Virginia Beach, uh, we had just done some additional training in Fallon, Nevada. So I actually stayed behind when the squadron left. I got about a, a month head start on the Top Gun program. And I just basically locked myself into the Top Gun library every single day. I'd read everything I could get my hands on. I was making note cards, write flashcards to study and uh, really making an investment of time to try and get ahead because I knew how busy the syllabus would be. And once the class, once everyone shows up, uh, the class has changed a little bit over the over the years. Now it's about a 12 week, 12 week long program. When I went through, it was just under 10 weeks. Mm -hmm. And you typically have eight other crews. So there were there were 10 crews going through at a time. And, uh, you know, and it's both pilots and weapon systems officers. It's Navy and Marine Corps. Every once in a while, you might have an exchange pilot from the Air Force that goes through with you. And so you you start off. It's a progression like everything else. It's kind of that crawl, walk, run mindset. So usually the first week or so was academics and you're sitting there with the top gun instructor who's the subject matter expert for air to air mission planning or for surface to air missile counter defense or for you know air to ground essentially the delivery of ordnance or bombs and so these these instructors are coming up and they'll they'll teach but they also quiz and ask questions so it's a very interactive process to gauge to not only instruct but also gauge your knowledge and how much you've been studying and as you're going through that, you're usually doing a little bit of work in the simulators and, and you're just basically getting yourself ready for the beginning of flights. And then now, once you start, you go right into basic fighter maneuver phase because it's one of the, uh, I guess, the easier and it's kind of a crucible and that mm. it's just, like I said, it's one plane against another. It's you've either got it or you don't. And that usually takes about a week. Uh, they'll do a detachment, which means that they'll take the Top Gun instructors and the students. And usually because you're at high elevation in Fallon, Nevada, it's always, you know, depending on where you go, it's anywhere from 4,000 to maybe six or 7,000 feet. You're well above sea level. The performance of the aircraft degrades significantly mm -hmm. and you don't have the full performance. So you'll do a detachment for training and you'll either go over the ocean in, in California. So you fly out of Lemoore. You might go to Key West, Florida, which is always a good time, or you go to Virginia Beach, Virginia. You kind of hopscotch around. And so uh, you get a chance to do the, the, the BFM detachment. And then when you come back, you start doing what they call multi-plane. And so you start off with what in the Navy and Marine Corps you call section work, which means two planes flying together. So it might be your plane with another friendly airplane going up against multiple bad guys. 
Uh, and that's everything from air to air and also dropping bombs. And then as you get towards the end of the syllabus, you do what's called division flights, which means mm. uh, a flight of four friendly airplanes. And you're working together cooperatively uh, in a much larger scale to deliver ordnance to a target or to, you know, whatever it may be for that particular mission set, but to prevail and be victorious. And so you mentioned, you know, reflies. How often do people have to repeat flights? Is it one of these things where you're well enough trained in the fleet where you go out there and just knock it out? Or are there a lot of folks who kind of have to repeat things? Oh, no, I, I think most everybody repeats at least something. <laughs> uh, I, it was very rare for a student to go through the course and not have a refly. Uh, most of the reflies will occur very easily in, in the BFM phase because once again, I mean, if you go out there and the instructor just beats you up, then uh, that may have been okay for your rush ride, but to actually graduate and move forward, uh, you can't, you have to perform at a higher level. So that was not uncommon. You would go out, you'd fly what's called offensive BFM. It means you're fighting against the instructor, but the instructor starting out in a defensive position, you have the advantage. And it would be very frequent that the student would lose that advantage rapidly and the instructor <laughs> would just, you know, beat them up. And so if that happened too frequently, then, okay, what can we learn from it? Let's, mm -hmm. let's debrief it and extract the full value. But that being said, we're going to do this again tomorrow. And uh, you'd find that sometimes people might refly the same flight two, three, on, you know, on the extreme, maybe four times uh, before they pass. And at that stage, if you pass, you're fine, you're moving right on. If you get beyond three or four flights and you can't pass, then that's where you start having a serious conversation about whether you should continue in the syllabus or not, because it's not a matter of whether or not you could ultimately get there, but you're just consuming a lot of resources and there's a limited amount of time to complete the syllabus. And what is the washout rate? Do most folks complete? What's the challenge there? Yeah, I don't think I have a firm, you know, number for you. Uh, the most famous response when you go through Top Gun that you always get is it depends. And I think you know, every class is different. The time of year is different. Um, it's not typically every class that someone washes out. There's a pretty good screening process before people come in. The instructors want to put all the resources towards making you as successful as possible. Um, it may be every two, every three classes, you might find someone who uh, for whatever reason, it could be in the academic phase or it could be in the flight phase, but it's just mm -hmm. not a good fit. And so you uh, offer them an opportunity to pursue something else they might be interested in, in going after. Yeah, you've mentioned this a couple of times, and I think you bring it up in your book as well. But the, the importance of a debrief and the ability to detach yourself from the situation. Can you walk us through the, the naval aviation version of a debrief and then maybe apply it to you know your future career and the lessons you learned in that debrief process to you know, the broader things you've been able to apply to your life? Yeah, that's a great question. So the reason why we would say a debrief is the most important of the three phases is because that's where all the learning occurs. So you can, you can prepare, you can brief it, and that's just simply conveying the information in your, if you want to call it this way, you, your strategy for success. The flight itself is the execution phase where you're simply putting to work all the training. And of course, as you yourself experienced as a, as a fellow F-18 pilot, you know, the way things seem on, on the ground when you're experiencing 1G is not the same as when you're flying going 500 miles an hour and maybe pulling mm -hmm. five or six Gs. It, it changes the circumstances, plus your enemy gets a vote. So things are always very fluid and dynamic. Um, and so that's the importance of the debrief is that you get a chance to evaluate what was the plan, what was our strategy for success, and then usually the best debriefs are the ones where you ultimately failed. And so, okay, well, why the mismatch? You know, if we had the resources we needed, we had a pretty good plan, then why weren't we able to actually win? And so that's where you just pour through over time, hundreds and hundreds of hours of tape to recreate the engagements, to, to pull out everything that you can. And so that's the, the power of a debrief, right? It's, it, and it could be anything. It could be Sometimes you find that you failed because the briefing itself was poor. You didn't mm -hmm. adequately convey to those in your flight what you needed to do for success. They found themselves at a loss when they were airborne because they just simply weren't well informed. And that led to failure before you'd even walked to your aircraft. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes it might be that your adversaries did something that was incredibly cunning. It might be that you uh, made a just a mistake in the aircraft with how you were running your radar or how you positioned yourself or... Maybe you took a, a shot with your missile that was 
ultimately ineffective. And so therefore the person you thought you'd killed wasn't actually dead. So all these things can add up. And that's what you do in the debrief over the course of hours is you're evaluating these tapes, you're recreating the entire engagement, and then you're pouring through everything to determine, I mean, no, nothing's too small to figure out how not only could you do better the next time, but how you can also train others to have those same lessons. And I think that gets to the second part of your question, which is, okay, if you've, if you've spent 20 years briefing, flying, and debriefing, then you, you, you basically develop a skill set that's fairly unique, especially in the civilian sector, which is um, just being very thoughtful and deliberate with how you conduct your work. And I've found that that's conveyed and carried over very well, whether it's strategic communications and helping companies to build a strategic communications game plan. It might be helping a company um, espouse leadership skills and you know, and also just being predictive, being able to say, if this is where your organization, and it could be any organization, but here's where you are today, aspirationally, here's where you'd like to be three to five years from now. Well, then here's how we're going to line up these intermediate steps to get you there, but then also internally, the ways you can continue to build and refine your own team so that you're much more likely to experience success rather than failure. Yeah, what I found interesting is applying the debrief skill sets beyond aviation, you know, Having grown up in a touch system, it was the standard operating procedure, but I was with a friend of mine at, at some hospitals and we would debrief surgeons with their nurses. And it was just mind blowing how many lessons came from that. And even after COVID, I've hosted a couple of round tables with friends and peers for them to reflect on, you know, the crisis management they had. And they came out with a whole new understanding of how they'd approach crisis in the future. And so it's just a fantastic mm -hmm. skill that I think we've been blessed with. And to be able to bring that to the civilian world is really powerful. Um, so you graduated Top Gun, you ended up being an instructor at Top Gun, and earlier you mentioned kind of the weapons school and the, the Top Gun itself. Talk a little bit about the roles of Top Gun graduates in those different institutions. Uh, and one step back, so the which different institutions are you talking about weapons school? Yeah, so, so and... the weapons school and then the uh, Top Gun itself. So the Top Gun instructor and then as a weapons school instructor, what are the differences sure. in what your role might be? Yeah, I remember thinking one of the best presentations I saw from a former Top Gun commanding officer was a guy named uh, Commander Trim Downing, uh, ultimately was promoted to Navy captain before he retired. But, My first you know, keg. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, small world, like you said, small uh, community. So it's one of those things where it's, it's fun because when you think about how Top Gun structured, you know, in most people's minds, you kind of have this pyramid and you think, okay, from a tactical standpoint, Top Gun's at the very top, then you have your weapon schools who are the ones who uh, learn their tactics from Top Gun, but they're more plugged in with the fleet squadron. So they're helping to share that level of knowledge. And then you have the fleet squadrons and Trim Downing I like because he kind of said, look, that's BS, uh, invert that pyramid. Top Gun's really at the bottom. You know, like we're, we provide a service, we provide standardization, but you know, those frontline squadrons are, are at the top. They're the most important. So I thought that was a great perspective. But that's the role that, you know, we always said as a Top Gun instructor, our job was to train the trainers. So Top Gun instructors wind up being the subject matter expert for the entire U.S. Navy and Marine Corps for the subject that they teach. In my case, I was the air-to-air -air mission planning subject matter expert. And so that meant that I held the standardization for the Navy Marine Corps on uh, a significant portion of aerial combat. Uh, and like I said, you know, usually there's about 20 to 25 instructors on the staff at any given time. Everyone has their own area. And if a question comes up in that area, then that person speaks for the Navy and the Marine Corps. And, and uh, that's the power of Top Gun. You have what's called a standardization board. And that's the 10. Uh, it's not seniority by rank. It's the 10 most senior instructors by time on staff. And so you'll have these regular meetings called standardization board meetings or stand boards. And that's where if you are a relatively new instructor and you have a brand new way to conduct business, you have to take it to the stand board first and convince everybody that this is the right change to make because either you have a new capability with your aircraft, you have a better weapon coming online, or possibly your adversary has changed something. So you say, okay, things have changed. Here's a new way to do business. And they'll kind of tear it apart. And if you prevail though, then that becomes the new standard for the Navy and Marine Corps. So that's what was really neat about the entire experience is Top Gun instructors are not 20 year veterans of the Navy Marine Corps. These are men and women who've spent maybe at this point of active flying in the F-18 or now the F-35, 
two and a half, three, maybe four years of time. So you're very tactically proficient, but you're relatively junior in your time in service. And to have that much, that level of responsibility that young in your career, I thought was just phenomenal uh, because you don't have a lot of senior officers calling the shots. It's a bunch of Marine Corps captains and Navy lieutenants and senior enlisted as well who are calling those shots. Yeah, I talked to Josh Marcuse last week, you know, former head of the Defense Innovation Board. And, you know, his main focus was on empowering people, especially at the lower levels. And Top Gun is one of those unique cultures in the military that really allows innovation to come to the fore. You talk about the cultural elements um, in terms of the command and control there. You know, military usually has a commanding officer and a very hierarchical system. Top Gun is more flat. How does that play out operationally on the ground in Fallon? Yeah, a couple points real quick. Uh, one, love Josh Marcuse, so I'm glad you had him on. Um, second is that you're right, the Navy's normally a hierarchy, like most military organizations, and like a lot of organizations are, right? So you have the CEO at the top, and then it filters down through the C-suite and into the lower elements of your organization. What's not only unique about Top Gun, the fact that it's a very flat organization, like you mentioned, like 95% of the people are junior ranks, and then you have typically a figurehead at the top called a department head. It's a Navy commander who's actually been in service somewhere between maybe 15 to 17 years. And they're the the commanding officer, if you will, for Top Gun. But it's a flat organization because you have so many junior personnel who are just working directly with the experts in the intelligence communities or experts with the Air Force and other services. That's, That's great in and of its own right. But the thing that makes it fascinating is that you have so many senior leaders who are willing to to accept that model in the first place, right? So you have a lot of admirals and generals who could have said, I'm not gonna listen to a, a Marine Corps captain tell me how to do business, but they don't. They say, you are the most you know, tactically proficient, you're relevant, and in fact, you probably have a different viewpoint than I do, which makes you uh, dangerous in a good way, that you're always thinking about ways to be innovative. And so we want that and we're going to protect that. And that's what I think has made not only Top Gun so impactful, but it's also great to see that that's been preserved for decades of the staff's existence. What struck me was at a department that came back three years out of the cockpit, and it was amazing how quickly the tactics has changed. Technology had moved on, our adversaries had evolved, and a lot of the new things we were doing came directly from Top Gun and those young people who were, who were making the changes. So, you know, in your role as area mission planning officer, when you wanted to do something new, what was the process by which you had to get it done? You mentioned the stand board, but like, how did you conceive of it? How did you test it out? And how did you actually find a part of the fleet? Yeah, you know, in some respects, it was an embarrassment of riches because I showed up right as we were at a pivotal point in time for Top Gun. We basically completely changed over, over from old Soviet era tactics to newer tactics, uh, which we appropriately called fighter tactics. And to your point, so the, my predecessor was a guy named Hal Schmidt, callsign Bull. And he had been working with the U.S. Air Force. They just started exploring these new tactics, but he had to leave the staff before I even got there. So now here I am as a brand new Top Gun instructor. Normally you have about a good four to six month period of turnover from the previous subject matter expert to the new one. And so I didn't have that opportunity. What I did have though was a good Rolodex he'd left me. And so I uh, made connections with the intelligence community. There's a couple different organizations in my case is the air to air mission planning subject matter expert that were important. There was the NASIC, which is the National Air and Space Intelligence Center at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio. Um, so they had a lot of great information on adversary capabilities to include how their pilots were being trained, the aircraft they were using and the missiles they were using, and then also the CIA, because the CIA, of course, is one of our vanguard intelligence agencies. So, you know, you kind of start at brass tacks and you the thing that's interesting about how you do aerial combat is you build everything in reverse. And by that, I mean, you start with the closest ranges between two aircraft and you build outward from there. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the reasons why it was timing that I got selected for air mission planning. The other reason was because I had, I had gone to MIT for an engineering degree. And so it was like, mm-hmm. hey, this guy's a nerd. So he'll be <laughs> great with math and science. And so you work with the intelligence communities. You, you ask the questions that, okay, so what are those closest ranges that an, an enemy can reach out and touch you? Uh, how can you be harmed? Where can you be killed? And then that becomes mm-hmm. kind of your minimum range you want to get to them or as close as you want to get. And then you start backing all your tactics up from there. And, and it really becomes a lot of math. It becomes a lot of simulation work, uh, meaning on your, in this case, computer, you could simulate 
uh, different engagements. And so I ran just thousands of simulations. And after I compiled all that information, it took about four to six months, you start, uh, you prepare and you deliver your lecture uh, and training for Top Gun instructors to critique. And that's what's called the pre-board system. So there, you usually have eight pre-boards and then it culminates with what's called a murder board. And the standard for every Top Gun instructor is that you have to give your entire lecture from memory, no note cards, nothing. Um, so in my case, it was 437 slides. Uh, it was about four <laughs> hours long, <laughs> you know, so, Jeez. but you're just doing it. It's repetition. You're there yeah. every day practicing on, on the weekends. And, and ultimately that, that in and of itself was like a rite of passage to, to say, there's no way I can memorize 400 slides. And then you do it yep. and you deliver the speech. So that gets you all the way through. So that means the Top Gun instructors have been, they've been familiarized with what you want to change because you're delivering the, the lecture as you plan to give it as a new Top Gun instructor. It just hasn't been approved for delivery yet. Once you are done delivering your murder board, all the other instructors will basically vote on whether you pass or fail. And as long as you pass, then you kind of go into a second meeting where it's, okay, here's all the new stuff you have laid out for the Navy and Marine Corps. Let's discuss whether this is appropriate or not. And so uh, one of the things we'll talk about is how many changes should you make at one time? I mean, we it was a sea change to go from, like I mentioned, those Soviet era tactics to these brand new timelines, the way we were conducting business and the aircraft just completely changed. So one of the decisions we made at my murder board was we're going to incorporate maybe 80% of it right away, but there were some brand new timelines for some new adversaries weapons that we're going to hold for six months so that we don't overload the fleet. Um, we socialize the new stuff, get everybody on step with the new stuff, and then we'll kind of trickle in the additional material that we want to teach. With such a drastic sea change, even 80%, what was the, the reaction in the fleet? Uh, you know, we always joked. I mean, the joke was anytime something changed, it wasn't because it was relevant. It was because a Top Gun instructor needed a fitness report bullet. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, but there, there's some truth to that in that everyone who takes over a new subject matter area uh, feels the desire to add value. Um, usually that's a very good thing. I mean, rarely would you see someone change it just to change it. It's because now every two to three years, you're getting a fresh look at it. And as we've already talked about, I mean, things are changing constantly. Mm -hmm. So your adversary is changing what they're doing. Of course, within uh, you know America's military structure, things are changing there too. So it gives you a fresh look at whether or not it needs to be updated. Usually the answer is yes, to some extent, and you push it out. And it could be, you know, it's funny because as the instructor, I would have, we had a program called the Senior Officers Course, SOC. And this is where prospective executive officers, commanding officers for squadrons and aircraft carriers would come through Fallon for a week period, a week long period. And they would, they would take different classes and usually uh, instructors would give them the latest and greatest tactics. So it was kind of like a finishing course. So they would be up on step before they go back to the fleet. And it was, it was funny because you always watch these Navy commanders just like throw their paper up in the air and be like, oh, you're, you know, here's the brand new stuff. I got to learn it all over again. But just like you said, Bennett, when you started this question, you're like, man, like every, you could be out of the cockpit for three years, you come back and realize there's a lot of new changes, but it's important because it's keeping us on staff. It's, it's maximizing our strengths while minimizing your weaknesses. Now, I want to maybe go a little bit further afield. You, in addition to being a top gun instructor, then end up being a commanding officer on the front lines in the Far East, went to the Pentagon and did some fantastic work there. Given what you learned at Top Gun and kind of what you saw at the strategic level, how has the role of naval aviation changed in the past 10 years? And what is its future? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, we celebrated the 50th anniversary of Top Gun last year. So it was founded in 1969. So here we were 2019 in San Diego. And it was great. You bring back a lot of these Top Gun instructors, but it also gave you a historical perspective because you had instructors that represented every decade from the mm -hmm. 70s onward. So it gave you a couple of things. One, it kind of showed you there are, there are times where there's the highs of naval aviation and Top Gun where it's very relevant. And then it's, you know, it's kind of like a pendulum. It swings back and forth. Sometimes it's incredibly relevant. Um, the commanding officer at that point in time was a guy named Chris Papiano, call sign Pops. And he was a little frustrated because he felt like Top Gun had been marginalized somewhat. It wasn't, it didn't have the same uh, loud voice that it had been used to having even you know, he was a Top Gun commanding officer at that point in time. 
he and I were instructors together and we'd had a lot of influence at that point. So he, he was kind of concerned with how that had slid. Uh, Naval aviation as a whole still has a significant amount of influence within the Navy, within the military structure, because of course, air support's critically important. We've seen this play out in the Middle East during combat operations in the Indo-Pacific for you know, preservation of peace. I mean, the aircraft carrier is a big part of that. I think to your point, where is it gonna go in the future is still up for grabs. When, when I was working for Secretary Mattis, the Deputy Secretary of Defense was a guy named Pat Shanahan. He had been a former Boeing executive and he did not want to fund uh, the aircraft carrier moving forward. He was trying to find ways to off-ramp it because a lot of there was a lot of concern, one, for the price tag. It's about a $13 billion piece of equipment. The other aspect was it's, it's increasingly vulnerable in today's environment. And much like the battleship in World War II, had the carrier outlived its usefulness. And it's interesting because even if that is a true statement, you still have other equities involved, like members of Congress who have uh, constituents uh, who have these large defense contractors. I mean, so it's this giant amalgamation of how everything fits together to actually create change. I think that what you're going to see is there's going to be a continuation for the for the importance of air power, but it's just going to be in a different way. You're going to see greater increase in unmanned aerial systems. You're going to see what's uh, right now they're working on something called uh, NJAD, which is the next generation air dominance platform. And as part of that, it's not just a new fighter aircraft, but it's also this concept called system of systems. And so basically you want to mesh network everything together so that you know almost anything can be a sensor putting information into the network. And that means that anybody can act upon that information. And then also uh, you know, a lot of various different weapons from different platforms could be used. So it would give you a lot of uh, great information sharing capability, but also ability to to act in a more nimble, agile fashion, which may not require the use of a carrier, may not require the use of these large traditional platforms, but you could get away with with more advanced or smaller platforms. Mm -hmm. You probably saw the news this week that the Air Force is going to send an F-16 up against an AI F-16. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I've seen this play out a few times. Um, so I programmed my first neural network back in 1996. And so I've been in the AI field for a couple of decades. Uh, now I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to go and, and program one today. I'd be greatly outclassed. But I mean, you know, I've I've been there and I've I've seen that work. AI is very good for narrow applications right now. Um, there's this desire to go towards general purpose AI, where it's kind of this element, you know, the Terminator, right, where it can uh, pull in lots of different disparate pieces of information. You can act mm -hmm. in a broad sense, much like we think as humans, you know, we, this is how we interpret our environment and the world around us. And we can make high order decisions based off of that. Uh, that's not where AI is right now. And I've had discussions with everyone from the uh, intelligence community that's using a lot of intelligence gathering capability and feeding it through machine learning and artificial intelligence algorithms. But I think it's something that's in our future for sure. So when it comes to something like a battle between a, an actual weapon school trained pilot and an and an algorithm, you know, there's a 50-50 chance maybe the algorithm comes out on top because of the fact it's in a very uh, static environment. It's going to be a very narrowly focused, uh, the way it's set up, et cetera, to, to just demonstrate the promise of artificial intelligence in a dogfight. But the reality would be that if you were to take that same algorithm and plug it into a jet and say, okay, here you go, you're on the flight line, go fight, it, it mm -hmm. would not be able to pull it off um, today. But the great thing about where we are and the great thing that software-based capabilities have really enabled us to do is to fail fast, right? It's, it's that mm -hmm. iterative approach. It's the ability to say, I'm, I've got this, you know, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, a lot of, of visionaries pursue this same approach, which is I can't do it today, but all it requires is for me to get back to my desktop, code in some new lines, and let's try it again tomorrow. And let's keep refining it. And what you'll find is that you, you might fail miserably tomorrow when they have this battle, but you know, they're going to learn a great deal from it. And that algorithm is going to continue to get better and better and better over time. That's a great point. I mean, it really raises the, the question about software versus hardware. And I think the U.S. military for the past, let's just call it 250 years, is very hardware focused and software is coming to the fore now. When you were at the Pentagon, what did you see in terms of software becoming more and more prevalent in weapon systems or decision making? 
Sure. Yeah. So at that point in time, when I was working for Secretary Mattis, it was 2017 to the end of 2018. Um, and so it was one of those things where it was a large part of the discussion, but it hadn't yet flipped over, if you will. Um, yeah. You had the Defense Digital Service. You had, of course, uh, you were working with Josh McCuse with the Defense Innovation Board. A lot of these groups were, were espousing the belief that software-based solutions are the way to go because not only is it a lower threshold for cost, but it also gives you a lot of flexibility and the ability to, to retool quickly. So there's a lot of great reasons to go to a software-based model. Um, where things have now advanced is that the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisitions and Sustainment, Ellen Lord, uh, has done a nice job of also pushing with Congress to say, we need a different, what they call color of money. We need to have our software enterprise funded with its own specific pool of resources so that we can really make this um, an area of emphasis. And so that's good for a number of reasons. One, it, it's because it's going to define it as its own unique thing, which it is, but also it's going to think gr uh, provide greater incentives for the private industry players to want to engage more heavily into software-based capabilities. But, you know, I mean, even when I, back in 2013 and 2014, I had worked for Chief of Naval Operations, a guy named Admiral Jonathan Greenert, and that was when he was just beginning the roadshow for the Navy talking about, he always mentioned, you know, it's basically like having apps on an iPhone, right? Like you could buy the iPhone, it could be good for three to five years, but the apps are always being updated, they're always changing, they're becoming more relevant uh, as people unlock these new capabilities. It's the same iPhone but the app is what gives you that kind of transformational power. And I think that that's a good parallel for where the military can go and that you can um, use similar hardware but and get greater longevity out of it, which would save you money in the long run, but have these reprogrammable software capabilities so that you can make greater use of it and continue to unlock better capability over time. Yeah. You made mention of the fact that you worked for Secretary Mattis and the Chief Naval Operations Officer Greener. And I don't think you mentioned you were a speechwriter. So I want to maybe spend the last part of our conversation. You're a unique beast in that you are a fighter pilot, you're an engineer, but you're also a really talented writer. So how did you get into writing? Like what, what piqued your interest and caused you to want to be a wordsmith? Uh, nothing, frankly. <laughs> I had no interest in being a wordsmith. Um, uh, the only reason I, I mean, it's fate and timing. So often our careers that put us on a pathway in 2011, I was finishing up my department head tour in Japan. I'd been stationed at Itsugi Air Base in Japan. And things had gone really well. I was uh, a, what's called a national finalist for a program called the White House Fellows and ultimately wasn't selected. And so my detailer, the person who's responsible for human resources, who's going to give me my next assignment, kind of panicked. He's like, I have no other option <laughs> for you. I, th I thought you were going to get it. You didn't yeah. get it. I don't know what to do. And so... Uh, he kind of came back with, I want to send you to for a year to the Naval War College. And I said, no, thanks. I've already done it. Like, you're obviously not looking at my record. I, I actually did the resident or the non-resident course. Uh, why would I repeat it? He's like, oh, it'll be great. You'll get another master's. It'll be time off. So ultimately, he basically gave me no other choice than to go. And there was a professor, Donna Connolly, who was absolutely fantastic. She ran the writing center at the Naval War College. And it was just a resource. And I'm not sure why I felt compelled to do so, but I kind of partnered up with her. I'd go see her usually every week or every other week. And she helped teach me to be a better writer about uh, you know, things that I was doing early on that frankly were just because of my engineering background just did not work for being a more compelling writer. And so I, I would give her the credit for putting me on that path. I wound up doing very well at the Naval War College. And because of that, the president of the Naval War College uh, knew that Admiral Greener needed a speechwriter. And so he said, hey, if you're willing to consider it, I'd like to throw your name in the hat. I said, sure, I'm honored. And, and the rest was history. That's and great. Because, well, and real quick, and because yeah. of that, that's, again, fate and timing, right? So that is how I got to the job with, with Admiral Greener. And then from there, I left. I was a commanding officer in Japan, transitioned back. I, I was placed in a job with Naval Aviation. And then because I'd had the experience with Admiral Greener, mm -hmm. now when Secretary Mattis had taken over Secretary of Defense, he's like, I need someone who can run my speech shop. And that's when I got the phone call to work for him. So it's kind of this, you know, like I said, fate. Yeah, a little bit of a random walk, if you will, to get to that, there you go. that, that peak. <laughs> so you're in your second book now. Can you walk us through the book writing process? Like, why did you decide to write your first one? And what will go through your mind as you're building this stuff? Yeah, I think, you know, 
different styles of books are different. So if you're writing a fiction, it'd be different than what I've done so far. Although I would love to write a, a book that's uh, based in fiction in the future. Um, so the first book I wrote was called uh, Holding the Line Inside Trump's Pentagon with Secretary Mattis. And I felt compelled to write it because when I looked back, I'd recently retired from the U.S. Navy. When I looked back through my career, I mean, I was a voracious reader and I gained so much from the experience of others. You could read Walter Isaacson's book on Kissinger. You could read, uh, you know, uh, you know, books about the Reagan presidency. You could read, you know, John Meacham's book. I mean, there were just these people who would spend time going through history and then putting it all together in a cohesive package that you could read. One, it reads well, it makes sense. And then you, you walk away going, man, I had no idea that was happening behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. So in my case, I knew I'd had a very unique experience. I'd worked for Secretary Mattis. I had uh, written presidential speeches. I had traveled around the globe, you know, and set in with these ministerials as you're working with ministers of defense from other nations. And and plus, you throw in the Trump factor. So regardless of whether you love him or hate him, I mean, he he has changed the game. And so that was was uh, complicating the picture a little bit and changing how we were working with allies and partners. So all that was just a phenomenal experience. And then you throw on top of it, I wasn't a political appointee. I was still a Navy commander for a majority of my time. And so I found myself going, man, I mean, this is not a story I ever remember reading whenever I was coming up through the ranks. Um, everything from how do you how do you work effectively in the Pentagon? How would you, what's it like to be sitting in the room with then Minister of Defense Gavin Williamson from the United Kingdom as you're you know, discussing bilateral cooperation between the United States and England? So it kind of ran the gamut from things that I think I learned from watching how the staff operated all the way to what you can learn kind of with how the nation state operates. So that was book one, and that was very unique from a historical perspective. And then you switch to more of a passion project, which is the second one called Top Gun's Top 10, Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit. And throughout my career, I, I kept going back to the same bag of tricks. The things I had learned as a Top Gun instructor, as a Navy Lieutenant, I'd been surrounded by great mentors like we all are, people who want to invest in you. They've got mm -hmm. great sayings. And, and so being able to kind of take everything that I felt had made the most significant impact in my career tie it to an anecdote in the cockpit and then say, uh, here's, a, here's a quick read, but something that's fun that hopefully would resonate whether you're in high school, college, you're a young military officer, or you know, you're looking at a career change. Um, here's 10 lessons that would apply to you. And so with COVID, I, that probably makes the book tour a little bit more challenging or the, the media marketing. How are you thinking about getting the word out about, about the Top Gun book and make sure that message is heard? Yeah, stop number one was a random walk. So, <laughs> there you um, go. You'll get you about know, two pushes out of that. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's um, it has changed the game. I think the funny thing was uh, in the first book, I would say I had probably unrealistic expectations of what I wanted to accomplish. You know, mm -hmm. I think everyone, when you, I mean, it's it's not an easy. I don't write easily. Uh, I agonize over it. It. Uh, I actually will find that I I mull it over my head for a long period of time before I even want to start writing because I feel like I'm kind of priming the pump. Uh, otherwise, I'm just wasting my time. So it's a long process to put something down. And of course, once you've spent all that blood, sweat and treasure to make it happen, you just kind of naturally, I think, as a human being say, man, I can't wait till this takes off and people are just going to love it. and It'll be on the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, um, I think for this book, like you said, for the Top Gun book, COVID, there's a lot of other things. But I learned that, um, you know, find those networks, find the people who are who who love lifelong learning, find the people who are passionate about what they do, because those are the ones who always want to read um, something from a unique background or perspective. Uh, and then you kind of spider web out from there. And so that's what I've been doing. This go around is re-engaging with people like yourself, who I like having engaging conversations with. And then what you typically find is maybe two or three or four people who listen, like I saw Micah Murphy and others who are mm -hmm. on, you know, watching and chatting right now, who will probably go back to their networks and say, hey, you know, Ben had Guy on. That sounded interesting. I need to check it out. I'll pre-order it, which is great. But I'm also going to share it with my network. And that's usually where you find that, it, that people start getting more engaged and excited about the project. Was the timing circumstantial with the release of Top Gun 2 or was that intentional? It was intentional. Um, <laughs> okay. No, it was absolutely intentional. Yeah. Um, and it was intentional in that I greatly accelerated the book writing process mm. to try to squeeze it in. Um, you know, you could have a whole conversation about the publishing industry and how it yeah. actually works. And, 
you know, look, it's uh, let's let's rip the blinders off, right? It's a money-making enterprise like anything else. Uh, not necessarily just for the author. I'm, I'm saying these are companies who are not doing it from a nonprofit status. So they'd like right. to see things be successful. I had to convince a publishing company that, hey, I could take in a concept to a finished project within about seven or eight months, which is mm -hmm. about less than half the time for yeah. a normal book to go through. Uh, so that took some teeth pulling, but uh, it was a lot of fun. And like I said, I'd ruminated. I'd already knew the 10 things I wanted to write about because I'd use them as a commanding officer. Yep. Uh, so these are a lot of the same tenets I had there. So I'd already kind of had them in my head. I just wanted to pair them with the right anecdote. So I actually wrote the entire book. Uh, and don't hold me again, hold this against me. But I wrote the entire book in one week. Uh, wow. Because Impressive. I basically just sat down and knocked it all out. And then you revise over time um, yeah. as you as you make it a, a more solid project or product. But um, yeah, so with coronavirus, it's been been interesting, but it, I'm looking forward to having it come out here next month. Yeah, well, unfortunately, we're getting to the end of our time. But the most important question I want to leave you with is, how did you get your call sign? <laughs> I, could, I was going to say, let's talk about, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's fascinating. So I'll, I'll give you, um, because of the audience, I'll give you both the real story and then also the uh, cover story. So the cover story is this. Um, when I showed up at the squadron, I had uh, already gone to grad school. I had a couple of master's degrees and a buddy of mine in the squadron knew that. And so, and, and this is the real story. Um, so I showed up and it was one of those day one call signs. Uh, the guy who showed up the same day as me, his name was James Guimond. His call sign when he had been going through flight training was called was Frenchie. And so they they automatically named him as kind of his rookie call sign, white flag, right? White flag of surrender for the French, yeah. um, which ultimately got shortened the flag over time. And so I show up as a guy who'd gone through grad school, et cetera, et cetera. And my call sign was short bus, uh, which got shortened to bus over time. So that's a real that's how I got it. Um, and then whenever I was doing some volunteer work as a Navy Lieutenant, I was still in my first squadron. I went to Larkspur Middle School in Chesapeake, Virginia or Virginia Beach and was giving a presentation about the joys of naval aviation and flying, mm -hmm. et cetera, to these high school and middle school kids. And one of the teachers did what you just did. He's like, hey, how'd you get bus as a call sign? And as you pan <laughs> the audience, there's there's some children in wheelchairs. Yeah. And so, you know, in that moment, it became the cover story, which was uh, also, you know, accurate for the time. But um, a lot of times call signs are the opposite, right? So you might have, you know, some giant fat guy and you call him slim, et cetera. And so the, the cover story became that because the Pittsburgh Steelers were the team to beat in the NFL at that point in time, and here I am, this scrawny white kid, and you got Jerome Bettis, the bus, was the running back for the Pittsburgh Steelers. It's like, dude, there's there's no one who would be more different than Jerome Bettis than Guy Snodgrass. Um, and so that became kind of what I used for from then on as when people would ask, how'd you get your call sign? Because the, the first one's a little bit less PC. <laughs> that, that's awesome on the fly thinking. I like that. Yeah, yeah. It was it was challenging. I'm like the, the the different things are running through your mind. Like, do I say I was a bus driver before I joined the Navy? Right. Like, how do I get there? But yeah. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. We could have a whole show on call signs, but we'll reserve that for the uh, the R-rated version uh, down the line. Um, but yeah. Bus, thank you so much for your time. Go out and uh, you know buy his book, and it comes out. When is when's the release date? Mid September. Uh, or? Yep, September fifteenth. And okay. thanks for asking. It is available for pre-order Barnes and Noble, Amazon. All that is a huge. Uh, impact for the book. So if you are so inclined, I'd be honored if you'd go out and snag a copy. Fantastic. Well, again, thanks for your time tonight. Thanks again to our listeners for listening to a random walk with Ben Coleman. We'll be back next with another great episode. Have a great night, y'all. Thanks. See you, Ben.